0: Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, and uh, we are grateful that you have promised to shepherd your people by it, that it is your voice, the voice of our good shepherd. And so, Lord, as your word is now proclaimed, I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, and Lord, that its comforts would comfort, its warnings would warn, its encouragements would encourage, its commands would shape us, and Lord, that we would get a greater glimpse of the glory of the God who made us and who saved us, that we would worship you more fully and that our eyes would be fixed more on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And I pray that you would do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have another year. Happy New Year. History is marked in years, 365 and a quarter days. History is marked in years. Now, in the past, the years and history, they were actually reigned, they were, they were marked by the reigns of kings. It was 400 years, um, that, sorry, not 400 years, it was 10 years into the reign of so-and-so, or 30 years into the reign of so-and-so. No king has reigned for 400 years other than the Lord. But this now is the year 2021, the year of the Lord, A.D. Anno Domine. That means the year of the Lord. It is 2021-ish, roughly, years. Not since the Lord began reigning. That is from eternity past. But it is 2021-ish years since the Lord has reigned with human flesh as a man who is God, as, a, as God who became a man. It is also around 2,000 years since the Lord reigned, not as somebody who would die for his people, but as the king who has died for his people. 2021 A.D., the year of the Lord. And so it is fitting that we take up our meditation on the work of the Lord, the sovereign work in which that he did in history, even before he became flesh. The work to establish a people, to make them a nation. Then to give them a place to dwell, to enjoy his presence. Then to make them a kingdom. And then to prepare them for his arrival in the flesh as their King. Friends, history is not cyclical. As some philosophers or or religions claim, it doesn't just keep happening in repeat over and over and over again until we learn lessons, but we just keep going and going. It's not random either. It's actually purposeful and it's headed in the direction which the Lord, the God of history, has already determined. And that's demonstrated as we see his hand in the Old Testament making and then keeping promises which could be seen, which could be experienced in human history. Not in Middle Earth or in Narnia, but in human history. And so be, today, we begin to look at the book of Chronicles, First Chronicles, which was written after the Israelites returned from captivity in Babylon. Now, the first nine chapters of this book are genealogies, and they're proving God's faithfulness over many generations, generation after generation after generation. And then the, the 10th chapter is the death of King Saul, Israel's first king, and this event is one which was preached off the pulpit just a few months ago as we finished off the book of First Samuel. And so I want to tell you begin we, before we begin that the, the aim of this sermon is to fix Our eyes on the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of David and Daniel and Ezra. To fix our eyes on the Lord, the God of Israel, as the Lord of history, so that we wouldn't despair when the world seems in chaos or it seems to be heading in the wrong direction. So that when we see powers or culture to be so powerful and so unstoppable, People trying to get on the right side of history but not knowing what it is because it's always changing. So when this happens, when we see this happening, we won't won't be tempted to abandon our faith or to modify it and to join in with these things which are actually just little blips in history which will come to an end. But the reign of the Lord will continue. Rather, that we would trust in the God who reigns over history and he also carries his people through it and he will bring them home to dwell with him in a perfect and righteous land to worship and enjoy him forever. I want you to enjoy his reign and to long for it to come in its fullness. And I want you to be certain that it will happen because he is faithful and true, and he is infinitely powerful. So our first point, as we're going to be looking through the first ten chapters of the book of First Chronicles, is this, point number one, the Lord is Lord of history. The Lord is Lord of history. In the first nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles, the Lord gives his people genealogies, and these genealogies span thousands of years. So he begins with Adam, the first man. And from Adam, the genealogy is traced to Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, with whom God made an everlasting covenant to be his God and for his people to be God's people. He made this covenant to Abraham. And so Abraham's family then is traced to Jacob, Jacob being his grandson Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And so Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and his name is going to be changed to Israel. And then we are given a genealogy of David. And if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 First, uh, First Chronicles and you can just follow along with me. You'll see these genealogies as we go. So we start with this Adam, and then Adam to Abraham. And then we're going to skip Abraham's, uh, skip over, we're going to move next to David's genealogy. You see this with me. David is the, the great and second king of God's people, and he was promised an eternal throne. And then we're given the descendants of David, those who followed after him, including his heirs to the throne. Generation after generation after generation, God hadn't forgotten his promise to King David. He was working history to keep it, and then we're going to go back in time. Now we go back to David's ancestors. So moving from David's descendants, now we go back to David's ancestors all the way to Judah. Judah was one of the tri- twelve tribes of Israel, and he was one of the twelve sons of Israel. And now we're given his genealogy from which David comes, and so then we're going to give his. De- we're going to get his descendants, genealogies. Then also of most of the other brothers of Judah. You'll see now these genealogies of the 12 tribes. Not all of them are mentioned, but you're going to see genealogies of the different tribes. Now, by tracing these genealogies over over the course of thousands of years, the Lord shows his power over history. He does this in the promises which he makes and then keeps to actual people in actual history an actual descendant of actual Abraham. First, a promise made to Adam and Eve and their offspring. It's actually traced to their actual offspring. Then a promise made by God to Abraham concerning his offspring. It's traced through hundreds and hundreds of years to his offspring to show that God is the God of history. He's the author of history. No one is in control of history except God. Jordan did a marvelous job to encourage and warn and soothe the souls of those who belong to the Lord last week. And he did so by showing from the book of Revelation that even though that there have been and will be powerful men who appear to be in absolute control of the world in the moment... They are part of God's history, which He is governing, and they are under His authority whether they like it or know it or not. World powers, kingdoms, empires, even the devil himself has and will seem to be like they are in charge. It may seem like the devil or one of these tyrants is ultimately the one who holds the world and the fate of the people of God in His hands. However, that's only how it appears. Empires and powerful rulers are real and they're active and so is the devil, but they are merely tools in the hands of the powerful and wise Lord of all, the King of kings, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The devil has been defeated, his head is crushed by Jesus, and his time is short. And these world powers which seem unbeatable, will be beaten and forgotten, and one by one they have been and will be. And they become merely historical lessons in the textbooks of high school students. Their kings and empires live for a time, but their lives too are merely just vapors, like morning dew, here for a short period of time. Only the Lord is eternal. Only the Lord reigned before Adam. And then as Israel hears these genealogies thousands of years later, the Lord remains on the throne. Only an eternal God could be the God of Adam and Eve, and also Noah, and also Abraham, and King David, and also the people in exile, and then also his people who've come back from exile, just as he promised they would. So now they're back in the land that the Lord had promised to give Abraham many hundreds of years earlier. Now Israel maybe had forgotten who they were. Forgotten her heritage. Forgotten her ancestors. Many years had gone by without proper teaching. Without the celebrating of the festivals each year several times throughout the year. The Lord had ordained this structure for the year to remember what the Lord had done for her and what he promised to do for her. And these people had been raised in a foreign land where the gods of Babylon were filling the streets and cities and marketplaces where they lived. These sons and daughters needed to hear that Babylon is not the eternal kingdom which governs history in the world. Babylon's king is not the one who reigns. Israel's God, the Lord, Yahweh, is. So then why then the exile? If the Lord is in control of history, you can consider these young boys and girls listening to grandma and grandpa teach them. If the Lord is in charge of history, why was it that we were taken from our land and defeated by Babylon taken to Babylon, and then we only came back at the pleasure of the king of Babylon. Why is it? If the Lord is Lord of history, why the exile? And if we are his people? Because that looks like Babylon is actually the eternal kingdom and its king, the king of kings. But Israel is reminded that they were actually conquered and captured and held in exile precisely because they were the apple of the eye of the Lord of history. See this with me in chapter 5, 1 Chronicles 5, 23 to 26. First Chronicles 5, 23 to 26. The members of the half-tribe of Manasseh lived in the land. They were very numerous, from Bashan to Baal-Hermon, Siner and Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses, Ephor, Ishi, Eliel, Ezrael, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, Jadiel, mighty warriors, famous men, heads of their father's houses. But they broke faith with the, the God of their fathers and hoard after the gods of the peoples of the lands whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiliath, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he brought them to Hala, Habor, Hera, and the river of Gozan to this day. And so it was the Lord who stirred up the king of Assyria to take Israel into exile. Now that king may have thought it was his idea, But it was the Lord who put it in his heart to accomplish the Lord's purposes for his beloved people. Purposes that he had sworn beforehand to accomplish. We see this also in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. We find this in the genealogy of Levi, one of the tribes of Israel. Another genealogy leads to exile. Tracing of the Lord's work and people and promise. So you can see this in the first two verses. We have the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And then we go all the way now to verse 15. Skip that uh, genealogy down. And Jehozadak went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. First, the northern kingdom sent into exile at the Lord's hand. And then the southern kingdom, sent into exile at the Lord's hand. Who was it that sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile? The Lord her God did. By Nebuchadnezzar's hand, no doubt, using him as a tool, but the Lord sent her there. Now, why did the Lord send her there? Why bring this disaster? Why raise up a mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, giving him what looked like to be sovereign and universal power and then give your beloved people over to him? It was not because the Lord rejected his covenant with Israel, but it was because he was keeping his covenant with Israel. He refused to allow her to remain in her sin. He wouldn't do it. He was jealous. He couldn't have her worshiping other gods sacrificing her children to false gods. It was because he loved her and was keeping his covenant with her that he sent her into exile. Now remember that the Lord had promised that the kings of Israel would be his adopted sons. He would treat them as his sons. And when they sinned and led the people into, into uh, sin, when David's sons led the people into sin, the Lord promised that he would punish them, he would discipline them, but that he would discipline his sons rather than enemies, he would discipline them to bring them back, and this is him keeping that promise, see this also with me in First Chronicles 9, 1, chapter 9, 1, so all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel, and Judah was taken into, ba- into exile to Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now, the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel. The priests, the Levites, and the temple servants, and some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. So you see that this is the Lord keeping covenant. He disciplined them because of their breach of faith. And I wonder if you also notice in these verses in chapter 9 that the Lord brought them back to their land. He begins listing now those who the Lord brought back to dwell again in their possessions in their cities. The Lord their God is doing what only a living and eternal God can do. He is describing his work in history, which spans generations and generations and centuries and millennia, and kings and empires, this is a flex. This is God flexing, but it's more than a flex. It is a comfort to those who belong to him, and it is a warning to those who do not. It's a demonstration that the God who loves them doesn't just merely love them, that he has steadfast, enduring, faithful love that's exercised in history and which has shaped the world events that loomed over them. History is governed by him to display his glory and for the eternal good and joy and holiness and life and blessing of his beloved covenant people. That's how he uses and governs history. And so what does God's hand in history tell his people as they are reduced to a stump, to a remnant after decades and decades of exile? It tells them that the promises of blessing that the Lord once made to them were kept. And these were actually smaller promises that he's making to them now. So they can trust these promises that he is now making to them. The Lord made glorious promises to them in this point in history. What did God's fulfilled promises of blessing look like in the past? Who had God made them to be In the past, what had God done for them in the past? What promises did he make and keep in the past? And that brings us to our second point, which is this, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord had placed their ancestors in the land of Canaan, and it was a land flowing with milk and honey. At least that was what it was called. It was a good description of it. The Lord prospered the people there. It was a land where they dwelt with him. A land it was, that was set aside for the enjoyment of that marriage between the Lord and Israel. The whole land was set aside for that purpose. Nothing else was allowed there. No one else. Just the delight of the Lord and his people. For the worship of God and the enjoyment of his people, of him. And we see a glimpse of this in the genealogy, and we'll just pick the history of Simeon, one of the 12 tribes. If you look in chapter 4, look at verse 34. We'll begin there. First Chronicles 4, 34. Meshobab, Jamlech, jo- Joshah, the son of Amaziah, Joel, Jehu, the son of Joshabiah, the son of Sariah, son of Asael, Eloni, Jacobah, Joshahiah, Asahel. Asahiah, Adiel, Jezimeel, Beniah, Ziza, son of Ziphi, son of Elon, son of Jedediah, son of Shimri, son of Shemaiah. These mentioned by name were princes in their clans, and their father's houses increased greatly. They journeyed to the entrance of Gedor, to the east side of the, of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks where they found rich, good pasture in the land, and the land was very broad and quiet and peaceful for the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. These, registered by name, came in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and destroyed their tents and the Moonites who were found there. And they marked for them for destruction to this day and settled in their place because there was pasture there for their flocks. And some of them, 500 men of the Simeonites, went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders Pelatiah, Neria, Rephiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi. And they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they lived there to this day. Israel received the land of Canaan from the Lord as an inheritance. And the Lord was very clear that they were receiving a mature land, one which was already fit for flourishing, wells and pastures vineyards and fields he planted the people of Israel in an already flourishing fruitful land which was able to bless them and care for them rich and broad pasture land for their flocks and though they were planted and they were they inherited they increasingly took possession of it as the lord prospered them and this is an example of when that happened And he gave them meaningful work to do in that land, to use the land and the resources to glorify God and to bless his people. It was a land of rest, but a land where work was itself seen as a blessing. And you can see that in these 10 chapters all throughout. You can see the different traditional family crafts and occupation. You can see that, uh, you see this in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Meonothai fathered Ofra, and Sariah fathered Joab, the father of Gi-Herashim, so-called because they were craftsmen. Verse 21, the sons of Shelah, the sons of Judah, Ur, the father of Lica, Leda, the father of Marashah, and the clans of the house of linen workers at Beth-Ashabiah, and Joachim, the men of Kozabah, and Joash, the... Uh, and... Seraph, who ruled in Moab and returned to Lahem. Now the records were ancient. These were the potters who were the inhabitants of Netam and Gidara. They lived there in the king's service. It was a great land which they once lived in and which they now returned to. And the land was now in decay, and the cities were in shambles. But that's not how it once had been. God is drawing their attention back to the flourishing of the promises made and kept. Brothers and sisters, this is also the Lord's promise to you. That being united to Israel's Messiah, Jesus, by faith, you will dwell with him on the earth in a land which is perfectly suited for life and flourishing, When his promises are finally fulfilled in completion, no worries will there ever be about sickness and death. Enjoying the bounty and generosity and care and provision of the Lord for your needs. He's not just a God of spiritual things. He will restore the land which you now walk on to be a place of pure blessing when Christ returns to bring his kingdom in fullness, What he had done with Israel in the past was amazing and it was glorious, but it was only a taste of what he will do in the future. It brings us to our third point, a people with mighty and famous men. Not only was the land glorious and something which the people ought to glory in, not with human pride, but they were to boast in the Lord for, But the people were also once glorious. The Lord had once filled them with heroes and godly men who were brave and who walked in the strength and fear of the Lord. He gave the men to protect them and who risked their lives to guard and protect the precious people of God, valiant in battle because the Lord was their strength. They did have many people in their lineage, in their history, to be ashamed of. Men who moms and dads would not want their sons to grow up to be and who they would not want their daughters to marry. That's true. But the Lord had also blessed them with godly men who were the right kind of manly man. As described in the word of God, men who picked up swords to protect families and women and children and their aging parents from tyrants. At one time, when they assembled the troops of fighting men, they needed more than one hand to count them. And the Lord draws the young men and women of Israel's attention back to those days. These are the men who you'd want your sons to become. Let's see this in 1 Chronicles 7, 1 to 12. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, Shimron, four, the sons of Tola, Uzi, Raphiah, Jeriel, Jemai, Ibsam, and Shemuel, heads of their father's houses, namely Tola, mighty warriors of their generations, their number in the days of David being twenty-two thousand six hundred. The son of Uzi, Israhiah, and the son of Israhiah, Michael, Obadiah, Joel, and Ishiah, all five of them were chief men, and along with them by their generations according to their father's houses, were units of the army for war. 36,000, for they had many wives and sons. Their kinsmen belonging to all the clans of Issachar were in all 87,000 mighty warriors enrolled by genealogy. The sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, and Jedial, three. The sons of Bela, Uzi, Uziel, Jeremoth, and Eri, five, the heads of the father's houses, mighty warriors. And their enrollment by genealogies was 22,000. 34, The sons of Becher, she- Zemirah, Joash, Eliezer, Eloini, Omri, Jeremoth, Abijah, Anathoth, and Elameth. All these were the sons of Becher, and their enrollment by genealogies according to their generations as heads of their fathers' houses, mighty warriors, was 20,200. The sons of Jediel, Bilhan, the sons of Bilhan, Je- Jush, Benjamin, Ehud, Shechaniah, Zethan, Tarshish, and Ahishahar. All these were the sons of Jediel, according to the heads of their father's houses, mighty warriors, seventeen thousand two hundred, able to go to warrior, able to go to war. And Shuphim and Huphim were sons of Ur, Hushim the son of Ahur. Chapter five, verse twenty four as well. These were the heads of their father's houses. Ephraim, Ishi, Eliel, Ezrael, Jeremiah, Hodeviah, Jadiel, mighty warriors, listen to this, famous men, heads of their fathers' houses. A part of the blessing of the Lord was military strength with the men who considered their lives not as valuable as the blessing and safety and honor of the people of God. That was something that Israel should have rejoiced for. Thank the Lord for, rather than being arrogant. We'll see why here in First Chronicles five eighteen 18-22. The Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh had valiant men, there it is again, who carried shield and sword and drew the boar, bow expert in war, 44,760, able to go to war. They waged war against the Hagrites, Jeter, Naphish, and Nodab. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle. And he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. They carried off their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 sheep, 2,000 donkeys, 100,000 men alive, for many fell, because the war was of God. And they lived in their place until the exile. So they prevailed in the war because of God. God was their strength, and he had given them strong men to protect them. And then he had given them their strength. And the Lord still, even though they had strong men, valiant men, it was still the one, he was still the one who won their battles. God himself was protecting his people and the reason why they lasted so long in their land was because of his hand. Israel was tempted to trust in other kings and empires when his enemy when their enemies approached. But they should have thrown themselves into the mercy and mighty power of their loving covenant God, whose mighty arm crushed their oppressors and cared for his people. And that was pleasing to the Lord. It was a good gift guarding his people from their enemies so they can dwell in peace. This would also not be only restored one day, but it would cover the whole earth, where no enemies of God or enemies of his people will step foot on the entire earth, because the second time that the Messiah would come, he would come to banish all enemies to hell. And his people will dwell in safety from their enemies, and the Lord Himself will do it. This brings us to our fourth point. A people with a temple and priests. They're looking back in their history. Who were we? That the Lord is promising to restore and then enlarge us. These people who are returned from exile, they need to hear of the temple where the Lord their God, that the Lord their God had given to them, making Israel as the place and people where the Lord had promised to be known and to hear their prayers and answer. The temple was where the Lord would accept sacrifices to cover the sins of his people and where his holy presence could be enjoyed without destroying people who were unholy, which is everyone, Israel included. Israel was reminded of the temple of the Lord and that he had appointed men to serve in the temple, the Levites. This is throughout all of these first 10 chapters. And it's going to continue on into the historical account of Israel, the importance of the temple. But we're going to read from chapter 6, 31 to 53 to get a sample of the service and glory and nobility of temple service, how thankful Israel should be that they have a temple and that the Lord had appointed men to serve in it. They weren't volunteered. It wasn't a democracy. The Lord gave them men to serve in it. Chapter 6, 31. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman. The singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel, son of Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Eliel, son of Toa, son of Zuf, son of Elkanah, son of Mahath, son of Amasih, son of Elkanah, son of Joel, son of Azariah, son of Zephaniah, son of Tahath, son of Aser, son of Ebeasaph, son of Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, son of Israel. And his brother Asaph, who stood on his right hand, namely Asaph, the son of Berechiah, son of Shimei son of Michael, son of Basiah, son of Melchijah, son of Ethni, son of Zerah, son of Adiah, son of Ethan, son of Zima, son of Shimai, son of Jahath, son of Jershem, son of Levi. There it is again. On the left hand were their brothers, son of Moriah, Ethan, the son of Kishi, son of Abdi, son of Melech, son of Hashabiah, son of Amaziah, son of Hilkiah, son of Azmi, Amzi, son of Bani, son of Shimer, son of Mali, son of Mushi, son of Morai, son of Levi. All their brothers, the Levites, were appointed for all the service of the tabernacle and the house of, of the house of God. But Aaron and his sons made offerings on the altar of burnt offering and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place to make atonement for Israel, according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had commanded. These are the sons of Aaron, Eleazar his son, Phinehas, his son, Abishua, his son, Buki, his son, Uzi, his son, Jerahiah, his son, Marioth, his son, Amariah, his son, Ahedab, his son, Zadok, his son, Ahemaz, his son. The people of Israel were not to forget that they were the people of the temple. Whom God gave the temple to, and they were honored to serve in the presence of God. They were the people of the presence of the Lord. Those whom the Lord chose to dwell with and who could enjoy his holy presence and his covenant love and the forgiveness of sins. The people whom God had provided sacrifices for to cover their sins. Do not forget, O people of the Messiah the sweet and awesome privilege, which is yours, to know and enjoy the presence of the holy God, and to enjoy his affection, because your sins are paid for, your sin is covered, it is atoned for, by someone other than you. Brings us to our fifth point, a people with a king from the Lord. A theme that we have continued to lean into in this last year has been the blessing of being a kingdom with a king. That the Lord has shaped his people not merely to be a family or a country or a nation, but a kingdom. A people who belong to a king, who who has power and authority and responsibility to care for them and then who to insist on their holiness and righteousness and peace and blessing to use his sword and power to produce righteousness and peace and blessing for the people of God. The people are reminded in chapter 1 that there was a time when kings reigned, but they themselves did not have a king to reign over them. Chapter 143, see this. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the people of Israel. Belah, son of Beor, the name of his city being Dinheba, the days when Israel had no king were not good days for them. We saw this when we went through Judges. Then he gave them a king. But it was a king after their own hearts. And though it was better than no king to have Saul, and though the the Lord did work victories and rescue and redemption from enemies by Saul's throne, he also led them into sin. And he was rejected by the Lord. And chapter 10 places us right where our study in 1 Samuel ended, the death of Saul, which is marked by the end of his throne because he was rejected by God as king over his people. Saul is struck down in battle against the Philistines, and he takes his own life on Mount Gilboa. But notice, though, that it's neither Saul nor the Philistines who ultimately determine the length of of King Saul's life. Chapter 10, read verse 13 and 14 with me. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in, a, in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So there was the Lord Determined, who determined the beginning and the end of the glory of King Saul. The people were to rejoice that the Lord had determined to give them a king and to care for them through a king. And they were also to rejoice that the Lord had taken away the throne from Saul. These young Israelite boys and girls hearing of this are to hear this and be happy that the Lord took the throne away from Saul and gave it to David. take a a throne away from Saul whose throne was essentially Israel's design and set up for David a throne that was by God's design, a covenant throne that rested on the power and love and faithfulness and righteousness of God himself. Now in 1 Samuel, I wonder if you remember that we watched as God called David and anointed him to be king over the covenant people, to be their royal kinsman redeemer, and to reign in righteousness and blessing and glory. And now in 1 Chronicles, we're going to see David take the throne and then pass his throne on from heir to heir to heir. And we're going to see God's faithfulness through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to the kings of David's throne and to the people that they reigned over. We're going to see the glory of life under a righteous throne and godly king. And as you see them in that historical account in Chronicles, you are going to rejoice when a bright light comes, and you are going to rejoice, and you think, oh, to be a a person under that king's rule. And you're also going to see the desperate situation, which belongs to those under an unrighteous king. Through chronicling these kings and their reigns, the Lord works a longing in his people for a perfectly righteous king who would put away unrighteousness from the land and who would lead them in righteousness. And God would give them that king when Christ came. And he would do so at the cost of his own life by taking the curse and of damnation for the unrighteousness of his people. It brings us to our last point, in the first 10 chapters. And that is by grace through faith. Though the Lord had given Israel his law and he had promised to chastise, to discipline them when they rebelled against his law, he also gave them sacrifices to cover their sins. And their obedience to his law was never the thing which kept God faithful to them. No one was ever saved before Christ or after Him by obeying God's commandments. It was always only by faith. And the chronicler is very keen to mention Abraham in chapter 1, reminding the people returned from exile that Abraham is their father and that they receive those blessings through promise, not by their own works. Abraham is known as the father of those whose faith is in the Lord. The importance of faith and and trusting and resting in the Lord is shown throughout these first 10 chapters of Chronicles. It is gloriously shown in chapter 5. We read this already. When the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Manasseh fought against the Hagrites, Jeter, Naphish, and Nodab. 5 verse 20. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hands. Why? For they cried out to God in the battle, and he granted their urgent plea because they trusted in him. They prevailed because God heard their urgent and desperate plea, not because they had done well enough at his commandments, not because they were good enough at praying, not because they were righteous enough, He heard their urgent plea, it says, because they trusted in him. Now, the Lord is the Lord of history. He reigns over all things for his glory and for the good of those who trust in him, who belong to him, who hear his promises and trust them. That was true before the exile, and it was true during the exile, and that's true after the exile, and it's true now. History is not random. It's not one king merely one after the other, one culture after another, one empire after another, taking turns controlling humanity, passing that baton of who controls humanity from one person to another. Brothers and sisters, that baton has never changed hands, ever. It is the Lord God of Israel, graciously and lovingly guiding history, which he has authored, for the perfect and wise care of his people. To bring about the promises that he has made, in which now in Christ, he has now paid for those promises with his own precious blood. COVID is not in control. Neither is the beast, neither is the dragon, neither is the pharmaceutical companies. Neither is Putin, or Trump, or Bolsonaro, or Xi, or Pelosi, or Biden, or Trudeau, or Pallister, or Rusin, or Bill Gates, or Big Tech, or the boogeyman. And you certainly aren't in control either. And nothing you can do can wrestle control from the person who's trying to take control. Because the person who has control is the Lord, the God of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only king of kings and history is safely in his hands and has always been. Only he could author a book which chronicles his reign, which spans more than 40 years, more than 400 years, more than 4,000 years. All of those men, if they wrote their biographies, would span decades. Decades which makes them mere blips in the history of God's care for his dearly beloved blood-bought people. Having heard this history, the people of Israel now just returned from their land as we're reading this book in First, First Chronicles. They're comforted and they're warned and exhorted to love and fear and trust the God of their fathers, no matter how powerful another ruler or God Appeared in the moment. The Lord is the one who graciously saves those who trust in his Messiah. Looking only at your moment in history is very unwise to do because you will get the impression that the wise thing to do is to trust in the powers and ideas and morals of this age and then hitch your wagon to them. By the end, of 1 Chronicles or Second Chronicles even, the people of God will be led to long for the ideal, perfect king to reign over them, David's greater son, a great and perfect messiah to reign over them, to long to belong to such a king, and that king would come. God himself would be that king taking on flesh, taking on Davidic flesh joining the line of David to fulfill what they were unable to do. Born to marry the bride of Joseph, David's heir. Now his reign would be longer, more righteous, greater, more gracious, more glorious than David's reign, Nebuchadnezzar's reign for sure. He would not only save his people from their enemies, but he would save his people from their sins he would be their temple and their priest and their sacrifice he would be the place where they could meet with god with their sins forgiven so brothers and sisters the greater son of david the perfect king has come And he has died for his people, all who trust in his life and death and resurrection from the dead, and in his coming kingdom of perfect righteousness. You belong to him if your faith is in Jesus, the Messiah. And so the changes we currently see and the upheavals that we see, they pale in comparison to the changes, the events that happened in the years of history, which we just now flew by. He is Lord of history. And so those who reject his reign cannot possibly be fearful enough. There's not a sufficient amount of fear that would be sufficient for being an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing worse than to be an enemy of someone who is eternal and faithful and who governs all things. So do not be a fool and refuse to repent and trust in him. Because those who trust in him can rejoice that he reigns because he loves you. He's died for your sins, and he governs history, even last year. And this next one, for his glory and in his love, he governs these things for your eternal good if you are in him by faith. He governs history to care for his bride, to gather her, to keep her, to shape her, and to bring her safely home to the delight of his perfect kingdom. So Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we read or even just skim through here and just dwell on a number of portions, just getting a glimpse of your reign over thousands of years, we rejoice that our God is the God of history, not the God of ideas merely, not the God of philosophy, but the God of history, who reigns over all things so you can keep promises, who saves his people by grace through faith. And Lord, we are grateful That you appointed for David an eternal throne, and we're also grateful that you put Jesus in the line of David to be the heir to that throne, the inheritor of the world. And we're grateful that we now have a brother who reigns over all things. We now have a sovereign over the whole universe. Who is also a human and who has suffered and who is sympathetic and who knows us, who is truly our kinsman redeemer. He's one of us. And who now treats us, his church, as his own body, considering our pain his own, our eternal glory as his own. And we're grateful that he doesn't just promise to hold us fast, but that being sovereign over all things, he will certainly hold us fast. In Jesus' name.